Last week we considered from verse 21 down to verse 26. I want to read those verses again, though we draw our attention to the closing verses today, starting in verse 27. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which should justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Well, amen. We'll end our reading. We trust again the Lord to bless the public reading of his inspired word. Do, if you would, join with me. Let us bow our heads and hearts together. Ask the Lord to help us in considering his word today. Our Heavenly Father, we can understand from this portion of Scripture, from truth throughout the word, and from the experience of the renewed heart, those words of Watts that we have sung, to pour contempt on all our pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, here is a gospel heart. We pray that you would work, renew such hearts in us today as we again come to these most important verses in your word. So be pleased to quiet us, still us. Lord, give us each the help we need to put from us those necessities and thoughts of this life. Lord, to put down anything within us that we would be more interested in than the affairs of heaven. And give us the grace that we need in these moments to benefit from the preaching and meditation upon your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As I said, I want to come and turn our attention today to the very closing verses of chapter 3. Last Lord's Day, we looked from verses 21 to verse 26 of this chapter and really said our amen to those who use such phraseology of the most important paragraph ever written or the 
Acropolis of the Christian faith and other such descriptions of those words from verse 21 to verse 26. Really in an ever-expanding way, what Paul said in sentence form in his thesis in chapter 1, he said in paragraph form here in chapter 3. Verse 21, as we pointed out last time, very clearly is a transition. He has stated in his thesis his purpose in writing to expand upon the gospel. He's not ashamed of this gospel of Christ. The righteousness of God is revealed therein from faith to faith because the just by faith shall live. But before he comes to expand on that truth of justification by faith of this given this gift, rather, of the righteousness of God, he, he's pointed out the hindrance. He's pointed out the need. And from chapter 1, verse 18, until verse 20 of chapter 3, the revelation of wrath, a statement of man's sin and depravity, his utter helplessness. He's fleshed it out in every way. He's taken boasting. He's taken any hope of salvation in self from every man, Jew and Gentile alike. And it's from that point of condemnation, of universal guilt, of depravity, of helplessness, that he said, but now. But now the righteousness of God is revealed. And he is, I say what he said in a sentence in chapter 1, he's said in a paragraph here in chapter 3, and then he's going to spend the rest of the book fleshing out that very paragraph into chapters. But before he does that, beginning in verse 27, he pauses and he gives some, we could suggest, reflections on the gospel. I found it interesting that some have even commented on this portion of chapter 3, these closing verses, that Paul's engaged in something that's anticlimactic. He, he's kind of departed from a real literary style. He's worked up to this powerful climax. He's, he's stated it so powerfully and beautifully. And he doesn't just leave you with it. He, he kind of steps back and says, now, now, are you thinking about this? And he says, it's not really what you would expect in a lofty piece of literature, but Paul's not worried about producing literature. He's worried about communicating truth. And so from verse 27 to the end of the chapter, he begins to reflect on the truth that he has expounded in that most important paragraph. Now, I don't want to uh, take overly uh, a lot of time here, but what did we find? Perhaps some weren't here, but what do we, we find in reviewing in that paragraph? We see this gospel of justification. We saw that its source is the grace of God, justified freely, without any cause in us. We find that its ground is the work of Christ. And those threefold themes of redemption, we have been bought back from that slave market, as it were. Propitiation. We've had God's wrath, which indeed dwelt upon us, and rightly so. We've had that removed. And here we see God Himself is vindicated in the work of Christ. Here is the ground of our justification. And then we saw its means as well. Faith. Not works. Faith. Not self, Christ. We even suggested Trinitarian meditations on this threefold aspect of the ground of our justification or the gospel of our justification. 
the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Their agreement, their unity, their purpose, and of course the love that is the foundation of it all. And so as we come to these verses that follow that most important paragraph, it's not really anticlimax. It's pausing to reflect, to have the impact of that truth rest upon our hearts and on our lives. And so I want to look from verses 27 down to the end of the chapter today. As I I said last time, that preceding paragraph, we could take it word by word, really, uh, sermon by sermon, almost for every word, and do word studies and flesh it all out. But we're just trying to follow the flow of the argument, flesh things out, as it were, along the way, because that's what Paul himself will be doing as he goes forward in the book. But as we come to, I say, these reflections on the gospel, the three bullet points, if you will, that Paul hits, he, he approaches them from different ways. He's, he's fond of using rhetorical questions, and we'll see those here within. We find him uh, speaking very plainly and challenging the Jews themselves on something they boasted in, we'll find. But the three things we'll consider today are these. And we reflect upon the gospel, number one, pride is excluded. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. I love even the language there. There's no, there's no question. There's no nuance here. It's excluded. It is shut out, period, end of conversation. Pride is excluded. And then he pauses yet again to emphasize something he's punched along the way. Distinctions are eliminated. Is he the God of just the Jews? Or is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Is he not dealing with us all in the same way? Distinctions are eliminated. And then we come to the closing statement. And here's a powerful one that stretches, as it were, our understanding or wants to make sure we've grasped it. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. So the law is established. These, I say, are the reflections on the gospel I want us to consider today. Pride excluded, distinctions eliminated, the law established. And so firstly, pride excluded. I mentioned Watts' words. Interesting, even just thinking about various hymns today, and there are many, but Bonner's repeated phrase, not what these hands have done. There's no boasting because there's no work we're adding to the work of Christ. There's no work that we're presenting instead of the work of Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Well, think about that with regard to the man that's writing these words. The Apostle Paul. You can only imagine the personal experience of this man who was the Apostle to the Gentiles. And yet had been at one time a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You know, it's interesting in your meditations, in your reading of Scripture, how different pieces of things will impact you from different angles at times. But just 
studying Romans and seeing the way Paul has to deal with Jewish objections along the way is so much of this opening part we've looked at so far as mindful of the Jews as it were on the sidelines listening and arguing to this apostle to the Gentiles. And it just made me wonder if the fact that Paul had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees and now here he is traipsing all around the Gentile world where we have been scattered in these synagogues because of, well, God hasn't answered our prayers and given us the kingdom and made Jerusalem the capital of the world instead of Rome. And, and here's this Paul who ought to know better, taking our Bible to the Gentiles. It's the unbelieving Jews that were jealous for the blood of Paul. And that is wonder, I say, of this man, the apostle to the Gentiles. The, the irony, in some ways, that God would have chosen him instead of one of the earlier Gentile converts to be the apostle to the Gentiles. No, it was Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a man who understood a little bit then about boasting. A man who understood a little bit about being in a different category of people than others. That this man would be chosen to bring Christ to the nations, to the Gentiles. Here's the first reflection on the doctrine of the gospel that is unfolded in that paragraph. And he puts it in the form of a rhetorical question. To get us to stop, not just hear it and pass on without letting it sink in. Where is boasting then? If you understood anything of what you just read, if you understand anything of the gospel as God has revealed himself in Christ, where's boasting? It's excluded. This gospel wipes it out. Why? Well, because of everything we've learned from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. We are sinful. We're rebels against God. We're unable to do anything about our condition. And beyond that, we don't even want to do anything about our condition until the Spirit of God convinces us of our sin. You might say, well, preacher, what about the religious people that do want to do something about their position? No, they want to have their sin. They just want to be justified and say that their good works can, can outweigh those. They can have them both. How often is that the prideful heart of the religious man that's lost? It's interesting how often religious people, and really this first reflection on the gospel, doesn't impact the world. It impacts the religious man. Because God's gospel eliminates boasting. And you look at every false religion, even false expressions of the Jews, Old Testament religion. You can look now through the centuries at false expressions of the professed Christian religion. And in their falsehood, one of the things that manifests their falsehood is that they don't exclude boasting. 
make room for boasting. Find that as we go through this epistle, particularly just in wrestling with the whole issue of faith itself. The prideful man is going to take this gospel of faith alone. And faith, as we've seen time and time again throughout the scriptures, has as its basic premise that it abandons hope in self. Faith is going to eliminate boasting. And yet the religious flesh has found a way to turn faith into a thing to boast in. I can't boast in other works. No, nobody's saved by works. But, boy, I believed and that other guy didn't. What has that done? It's turned faith into a work. And it's made room for boasting. The gospel excludes boasting. The gospel so impacts our heart and our understanding. That is, we're brought to believe we abandon hope and self. We place all of our confidence in Christ, and we come, interestingly enough, to boast. But we're boasting in somebody else. We're not boasting in ourselves. Paul kind of hints at that in his thesis. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He doesn't say I'm not ashamed of myself. No, when he looks at self, all he sees is shame. All he sees is sinfulness and self-righteousness and that which is worthy to be condemned and worthy to be ashamed of. But he boasts in Christ. And that text in Galatians, which Lord willing will come to this evening, where he says, and again Watts borrows from it, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save. It's one of the things in our old red hymnal where there were certain word changes in hymns and it would catch us by surprise, but that's one I kind of wish had stuck in other hymnals. The normal way of rendering it, and it was put that way in our blue hymnal, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. But to really fully come from Galatians 6, where that truth is, is drawn, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross. There's a boasting that the gospel admits. There's a boasting that the gospel really demands. But it's boasting in another. It's boasting in Christ. It's drawing attention as the triune God will do forever to the glories of Christ Jesus. The Father will call heaven and earth, principalities and powers, to witness the wisdom and power of His saving His people the person and work of his son. To understand the gospel, faith alone, Christ alone, eliminates boasting. And he pushes on from that. He says, where's boasting then? It's excluded by what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Now here's where we need to pause. I've Suggested this a couple of times in our studies along the way. I don't want to flesh it out and go to different scriptures and give all the examples of it. But Paul uses the word law in different ways in his epistles in the New Testament. And we have to discern 
what meaning he is using by the context. Sometimes, even in the context, it's a little hard to narrow it down. Well, this portion of Romans is a key place to pause and, and look at this little mini-word study because Paul just starts rattling off different variations of the meaning of law in this context itself. And if you look at them, some of these are quite obvious. If you look in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Well, that second time he says law there, it's pretty easy to understand what he means. The law and the prophets. The Old Testament scriptures. Old Testament revelation. Not quite as easy with the first mention. The righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Well, it's not really talking about the Old Testament scriptures there. Maybe it's talking about people living under Old Testament scriptures, living under the law of Moses and doing those things. Or is it, well, we'll flesh this one out in a moment. Is it the moral law that's in view? But here clearly in verse 21, he uses the word law to talk about Old Testament scriptures. There's another place, and this is our text, verse 27, where it's boasting it's excluded by what law? He's not talking there about Old Testament revelation. By what Old Testament revelation is, is boasting excluded? No, he's, he's using the word law here as it is commonly used in, in the sense of a principle. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what principle? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Which one of these principles, which one of these ways of viewing the gospel eliminates boasting? Does works eliminate boasting? No. Much to the contrary. If you have a gospel of works, that's going to promote boasting. Because you perform the work, you succeeded. You get rewarded. Boast. But by the principle of faith, I don't have the means to fulfill this law. I don't have the means to atone for my sin. I don't have the means to redeem myself. I don't have the means to remove God's wrath from off of myself. But if God is just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus, if I'm saved by faith without my own works, without my contributing anything to it, that excludes boasting. Because nothing in my hands I bring. And so he's obviously using the word law here with reference to a principle, a basis. Where's boasting? It's excluded. By what law? Works? No, but by the law of faith. And there's also another way that the word law is used. And that's what we speak of as the moral law. This is where even some of our evangelical brothers and sisters want to, want to fight with us and get uncomfortable. But if we look in verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. It would be possible to understand law here with regard to the Old Testament and the Mosaic legislation. Are we making the law void? No, we establish the law. Well, Christ said himself in Matthew 5, he didn't come to destroy the law, he came to fulfill it. Well, it's true to look at it and say Christ fulfilled the, the, the ceremonial laws. He fulfilled the law of Moses. 
He didn't break any of the laws that would have brought a criminal penalty in Israel. He fulfilled all the ceremonial, sacrificial pictures of his coming work. So he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the Old Testament. But is there not a, a way that the law is used that obviously includes that, comprehends that, but goes beyond that? Are we Reformed Christians not justified in concluding that threefold division of the law and isolating what we speak of as the moral law? We see it summarily comprehended not equal sign, but summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Let me ask you this. It's not a principle he's talking about with regard to the Gentiles in chapter 2. It's not the Old Testament revelation he's talking about in chapter 2 when he says the Gentiles, which have not the law. Okay, that one's Old Testament revelation. They didn't have it. But yet they become a law to themselves. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. Sometimes Paul uses law to refer to that. The very definition of right and wrong. The moral law of God. Now, we can't just, with watertight description, nail it down all the time. Galatians 3, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Is that the Old Testament scriptures? Well, yeah. Everything in it, if you understood it, should lead you to Christ. The schoolmaster, there's a lot of comment about even the terminology there of the, of the Greek slave that was kind of the master of the house. And he would be caring for the children, and one of the tasks of the schoolmaster was to make sure they arrived. They got there. They did their work. Well, the Old Testament scriptures, the ceremonial laws, all of that was the schoolmaster to make sure you arrived, to understand Christ. But then, what about the moral law? Is the moral law a schoolmaster to lead me to Christ? If I read Romans 3 and I see that I, even as a Gentile, I'm accountable to God's law. I'm a recipient of God's law. I'm a transgressor of God's law. That's leading me to Christ. It's showing me I need Christ. So, when we come to the word law, we sometimes have a little work to do to see these various ways that it's used. Here I say, pride is excluded by what law? Law of works doesn't exclude pride. It encourages pride. The law of faith, the principle of faith, that excludes boasting. Rightly understood, faith abandons any boasting, any hope in self. Places it entirely upon Jesus. So as Paul, I say, leads us into these reflections on the gospel. The first one, perhaps one of the most powerful points of impact, if you will, is pride is excluded. That's something you can piece together. We use that phrase so often, gospel thinking. 
Well, apply that to this. Is pride being excluded or is pride being entertained? And take it to the fruit of the Spirit. When somebody is saved by this gospel, when the Spirit has breathed life into that dead heart, when they've been changed and so enabled now to see and embrace Christ as is freely offered to us in the gospel by faith alone, what does that produce in us? Does fruit of the Spirit include boasting? Or does it exclude it? And you start going down the list. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness. A heart that's been changed by the gospel. A heart that has boasting. The promoting of self excluded is going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. So this first reflection on the gospel, pride excluded. But secondly, distinctions eliminated. Paul continues, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. He's just repeated in a sentence what the paragraph preceding had said. We conclude A man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And then he says this. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. And we'll not take a season here, but a lot of work and ink's been spilt on how we see this in our authorized version reflecting two different ways of saying it, by faith and through faith. But you can go to other portions like the Gentiles through faith, the uncircumcised through faith. We can find other places in the New Testament where by is used there. Paul's just using variation, but the point of emphasis is there's no distinction. Circumcision through faith, Jew through faith, uncircumcision through faith, Gentile through faith. It's all of faith the way he said it in his thesis, from faith to faith, from beginning to end, all the way through. It's a gospel that is by faith alone. But I say it's interesting here that these statements are given that, again, distinctions are eliminated. How many times has he emphasized this? To the Jew first and also to the Gentile in his very statement in chapter 1. When he comes in chapter 3 and he's coming to the conclusion and the summary of that, for there is what? No difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So as there's no distinction in sinfulness, there's no distinction in depravity, no distinction in that all are recipients of God's law, all are transgressors of God's law, all are condemned by God's law, all are unable to save themselves by God's law. So it is on the positive side. All that are saved are all saved by faith. There's no difference, Jew or Gentile. But I say it's interesting here because the way Paul phrases this, he's obviously talking to the Jews. He's got this Jewish objector in the back of his mind again. But like I said, I haven't never thought of it this way until we started our studies in Romans, but he, he's got that, that guy in the lobby of the synagogue coming at him with these various things, and 
He's addressing those objections here in Romans. He's got that guy in his mind. But here this truth, this reflection on the gospel, that distinctions are eliminated. He brings in one of the pinnacles of Jewish boasting, of Jewish revelation. There's one God, the Shema. Deuteronomy 6. And think about the impact of that to the Jewish mind. There's one God. You've been boasting in that. You've been twisting it and thinking that you're God's people. Nobody else is. But if any are going to be saved, if this truth that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that there is no difference between them in condemnation, there's no difference between them in justification. There's no superior standing that a Jew has in this gospel that's devoid of boasting. And so here, distinctions are eliminated. There's one God. There's one gospel. I wish... It's one of those many things I've read over the years that I wish I'd marked and put a note to myself to go back to it. Maybe it's in James Buchanan's work on justification. But anyway, the, the point he was making is that if the Jews had rightly understood that their own standing, their own access to God was in this gospel of grace that their standing rightly related to God would be one of grace they wouldn't have any objection to God receiving others on the same terms it's like the workers in the vineyard those that don't want the other people to get any gracious thing don't understand that their own standing is one of grace. Distinctions are eliminated. And I say Paul, perhaps the word is masterfully, brings in this pinnacle of Jewish boasting. One God. These pagans, they got all these many different gods. We know the one God. Well, Paul's saying yes, and that one God has one gospel. And it applies to all people. That's the only way anybody can be saved. You, Jew included. So Paul uses monotheism as a way to put down the objection of the Jew. Distinctions are eliminated. But let me come quickly today to our third reflection. Verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Well, here's where you could say, yeah, Old Testament fits in there. We're not making the Old Testament void. But I think it goes beyond. It's speaking of any means of being justified in the face and the sight of God. Perfect righteousness is what God requires. And if we're unable to fulfill that, if we're unable to perfectly fulfill the law of God, Paul, if you're preaching this gospel of faith, just believe in Jesus, 
then doesn't that make the law void? Well, Paul here is saying, pause and reflect on this. What do we just work through? If we understand that in the person and work of Christ, this gracious offering, this gracious gift of the Father, that is provided in the work of the Son in redeeming us through His blood, in removing His wrath from us through His atoning sacrifice, God's vindicated Himself from this very charge. He's just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. No, this gospel of faith doesn't make the law void. It establishes the law. It shows that God can't ignore His law. That God will not receive any unto Himself without a perfect law righteousness. Of course, this is what He's going to unfold so powerfully in chapter 5. You could say in one sense, as this gospel excludes boasting, it excludes boasting in self, but it promotes boasting in Jesus, that in the same way it excludes the law. It excludes any pretense of our making any claims about our own worthiness through our own works of the law. But it also, as we read in another place, is God magnifying his law and making it honorable. Of God saying, in order for sinners, lawbreakers, to be admitted to my presence and to enjoy me forever, my law has to be honored. And it is the very honoring of God's law that is the gospel the person and work of Jesus is honoring God's law what did he do in his sacrifice he paid the penalty of the broken law for us what did he do in his righteous life he merited the reward of the fulfilled law for us and so here we don't make the law void gospel doesn't push the law out of the way the gospel establishes the law the gospel honors the law we could go on a long season here there is if you've never read James Buchanan on justification it's a great vacation book sometime there are different pieces of that there's a is a part of our study of doctrine, names to different issues and thoughts. There's a, there's a heresy called neo-nomianism. New law. Namas is law. Neo-nomianism, new law. And it's a mindset, it can come up in different forms, that since man sinned, he failed in that covenant of works, if you will, to use the terminology... God has now introduced a new law. Something man will be able to succeed at. And he'll accept that instead of the original law. And friends, that shows up as close to home as American evangelicalism for the last century. Boy, Jones, I can pass the buck at this point. I used to be 
criticized and joked in the early years of my ministry of preaching against dispensationalism so much. It's like that's why God sent the flood. They'd all become dispensational and all the old jokes went. Lloyd-Jones paused in one of his messages on this section and he talked about the view. He said, folks, this is actually being preached. I'd heard it preached. But man failed in the garden. So God gave him this new test. Dispensation, a new test of the natural man. And man failed there. So then he gave him this one. And you go along, and of course I know some of the better dispensationalists even said man fails in all the dispensations. Well, if they would only bring Christ into all the dispensations. But aside from that, how easy it is for us to turn faith into a new law. Our faith is not what God accepts instead of his fulfilled law. He wouldn't be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus if our faith is what God accepted instead of his fulfilled law. So this gospel of justification by faith alone is based on the work of Christ. And Christ's work is based on the demands and the rewards of God's law. And so this gospel Paul is preaching, as some slanderously reported in preaching antinomianism of one perspective, here coming at it almost in the same way, you're making void the law then. No. God forbid. May it never be. If you understand the gospel of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see the price that was paid. You see how seriously God and we must take His law. If there had been a law given which could have given life, Verily, righteousness should have been by the law. But lawbreakers can't merit life by the law. They're condemned by it, period. Jesus comes. That second man, as he'll flesh out in chapter 5, comes. No, this gospel doesn't make void God's law. The awfulness of the cost, the wonder of the grace and power establishes God's law. It keeps God's law exactly where it always has been and always forever must be. God magnifies the law and makes it honorable in the person and work of Jesus. And the gospel of salvation through faith alone magnifies the law and makes it honorable. These are Paul's reflections, these rhetorical questions. Where's boasting? It's excluded. Where are distinctions between Jews and Gentiles? They're gone. Where's the law? done away? Oh no. 
No, much to the contrary. It's established. It's honored. And friends, there's the assurance and the joy of the believer. You don't walk around thinking God lowered his standard to let me in. No. You marvel at the cost. And you say, what a wonder that he's just. And the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come today and ask that we with Paul will reflect upon this gospel constantly. And in those reflections, the things we've seen fleshed out in these rhetorical questions will be very real to us and that they will be used still to work in us more of the fruit of the Spirit. Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can boast in who He is and what He has done as we flee from self and run to Him. So prosper the word to us today. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name.